0: Chapter Ten, Part Two of Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Amanda Hindman. Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt, Chapter Ten: The Presidency, Making an Old Party Progressive, Part Two. The other case was that of Senator Fulton of Oregon. Through Francis Henney, I was prosecuting men who were implicated in a vast network of conspiracy against the law in connection with the theft of public land in Oregon. I had been acting on Senator Fulton's recommendations for office in the usual manner. Henny had been insisting that Fulton was in league with the men we were prosecuting, and that he had recommended unfit men. Fulton had been protesting against my following Henney's advice, particularly as regards appointing Judge Wolverton as United States Judge. Finally Henney laid before me a report which convinced me of the truth of his statements I then wrote to Fulton as follows on November 20th 1905 My dear senator Fulton I enclose you herewith a copy of the report made to me by mr. Henney I have seen the originals of the letters from you and senator Mitchell quoted therein I do not at this time desire to discuss the report itself which of course I must submit to the Attorney-General But I have been obliged to reach the painful conclusion that your own letters as therein quoted tend to show that you recommended for the position of district attorney B when you had good reason to believe that he had himself been guilty of fraudulent conduct, that you recommended C for the same position simply because it was for B's interest that he should be so recommended, and as there is reason to believe because he had agreed to divide the fees with B if he were appointed and that you finally recommended the reappointment of H, with the knowledge that if H were appointed, he would abstain from prosecuting B for criminal misconduct. This being why B advocated H's claims for reappointment. If you care to make any statement in the matter, I shall of course be glad to hear it. As the District Judge of Oregon, I shall appoint Judge Wolverton. In the letter, I of course gave in full the names indicated above by initials. Senator Fulton gave no explanation. I, therefore, ceased to consult him about appointments under the Department of Justice and the Interior, the two departments in which the crookedness had occurred. There was no question of crookedness in the other offices in the State, and they could be handled in the ordinary manner. Legal proceedings were undertaken against his colleague in the Senate and one of his colleagues in the lower house, and the former was convicted and sentenced to the penitentiary. In a number of instances the legality of executive acts of my administration was brought before the courts they were uniformly sustained for example prior to 1907 statutes relating to the disposition of coal lands had been construed as fixing the flat price at ten dollars to twenty dollars per acre the result was that valuable coal lands were sold for wholly inadequate prices chiefly to big corporations by executive order the coal lands were withdrawn and not open for entry until proper classification was placed thereon by government agents there was a great clamour that i was usurping legislative power but the acts were not assailed in court until we brought suits to set aside entries made by persons and associations to obtain larger areas than the statutes authorized this position was opposed on the ground that the restrictions imposed were illegal that the executive orders were illegal the supreme court sustained the government In the same way, our attitude in the water-power question was sustained, the Supreme Court holding that the Federal Government had the rights we claimed over streams that are or may be declared navigable by Congress. Again, when Oklahoma became a state, we were obliged to use the executive power to protect Indian rights and property, for there had been an enormous amount of fraud in the obtaining of Indian lands by white men. Here we were denounced as usurping power over a state as well as usurping power that did not belong to the executive. The Supreme Court sustained our action. In connection with the Indians, by the way, it was again and again necessary to assert the position of the President as steward of the whole people. I had a capital Indian commissioner, Francis E. Loop. I found that I could rely on his judgment not to get me into fights that were unnecessary, and therefore I always backed him to the limit when he told me that a fight was necessary on one occasion for example congress passed a bill to sell to settlers about half a million acres of indian land in oklahoma at one and a half dollars an acre i refused to sign it and turned the matter over to loop the bill was accordingly withdrawn amended so as to safeguard the welfare of the indians and the minimum price raised to five dollars an acre then i signed the bill We sold that land under sealed bids and realized for the Kiowa, Comanche, and Apache Indians more than four million dollars—three millions and a quarter more than they would have obtained if I had signed the bill in its original form. In another case, where there had been a division among the Sauk and Fox Indians, part of the tribe removing to Iowa, the Iowa delegation in Congress, backed by two Iowans who were members of my cabinet, passed a bill awarding a sum of nearly a half million dollars to the Iowa seceders. They had not consulted the Indian Bureau. Luke protested against the bill, and I vetoed it. A subsequent bill was passed on the lines laid down by the Indian Bureau, referring the whole controversy to the courts, and the Supreme Court, in the end, justified our position by deciding against the Iowa seceders and awarding the money to the Oklahoma stay-at-homes. As to all action of this kind, there have long been two schools of political thought, upheld with equal sincerity. The division has not normally been along political, but temperamental lines the course i followed of regarding the executive as subject only to the people and under the constitution bound to serve the people affirmatively in cases where the constitution does not explicitly forbid him to render the service was substantially the course followed by both andrew jackson and abraham lincoln other honorable and well-meaning presidents such as james buchanan took the opposite and as it seems to me narrowly legalistic view that the president is the servant of congress rather than of the people and could do nothing no matter how necessary it be to act unless the constitution explicitly commands the action most able lawyers who are past middle age take this view and so do large numbers of well-meaning respectable citizens my successor in office took this the buchanan view of the president's powers and duties for example under my administration we found that one of the favorite methods adopted by the men desirous of stealing the public domain was to carry the decision of the secretary of the interior into court by vigorously opposing such action and only by so doing we were able to carry out the policy of properly protecting the public domain My successor not only took the opposite view, but recommended to Congress the passage of a bill which would have given the Court's direct appellate power over the Secretary of the Interior in these land matters. This bill was reported favorably by Mr. Mondale, Chairman of the House Committee on Public Lands, a Congressman who took the lead in every measure to prevent the conservation of our natural resources and the preservation of the national domain for the use of home-seekers. Fortunately, Congress declined to pass the bill. Its passage would have been a veritable calamity. I acted on the theory that the President could at any time in his discretion withdraw from entry any of the public lands of the United States and reserve the same for forestry, for water-power sites, for irrigation, and other public purposes. Without such action, it would have been impossible to stop the activity of the land-thieves. No one ventured to test its legality by lawsuit. My successor, however, himself questioned it, and referred the matter to Congress. Again, Congress showed its wisdom by passing a law which gave the President the power which he had long exercised, and of which my successor had shorn himself. Perhaps the sharp difference between what may be called the Lincoln-Jackson and the Buchanan-Taft schools in their views of the power and duties of the President, may be best illustrated by comparing the attitude of my successor toward his Secretary of the Interior, Mr. Ballinger when the latter was accused of gross misconduct in office with my attitude towards my chiefs of department and other subordinate officers more than once while i was president my officials were attacked by congress generally because these officials did their duty well and fearlessly in every such case i stood by the official and refused to recognize the right of congress to interfere with me excepting my impeachment or in other constitutional manner On the other hand, wherever I found the officer unfit for his position, I promptly removed him, even although the most influential men in Congress fought for his retention. The Jackson-Lincoln view is that a President who is fit to do good work should be able to form his own judgment as to his own subordinates, and, above all, of the subordinates standing highest and in closest and most intimate touch with him. My secretaries and their subordinates were responsible to me, and I accepted the responsibility for all their deeds as long as they were satisfactory to me i stood by them against every critic or assailant within or without congress and as for getting congress to make my mind up for me about them the thought would have been inconceivable to me my successor took the opposite or buchanan view when he permitted and requested congress to pass judgment on the charges made against mr ballinger as an executive officer these charges were made to the president the president had the facts before him and could get at them at any time and he alone had power to act if the charges were true however he permitted and requested congress to investigate mr ballinger the party minority of the committee that investigated him and one member of the majority declared that the charges were well founded and that mr ballinger should be removed the other members of the majority declared the charges ill founded the president abode by the view of the majority of course believers in the jackson lincoln theory of the presidency would not be content with this town meeting majority and minority method of determining by another branch of the government what it seems the especial duty of the president himself to determine for himself in dealing with his own subordinate in his own department there are many worthy people who reprobate the buchanan method as a matter of history but who in actual life reprobate still more strongly the jackson lincoln method when it is put into practice these persons conscientiously believe that the president should solve every doubt in favour of inaction as against action that he should construe strictly and narrowly the constitutional grant of powers both to the national government and to the president within the national government in addition however to the men who conscientiously believe in this course from high although as i hold misguided motives there are many men who affect to believe in it merely because it enables them to attack and to try to hamper for partisan or personal reasons an executive whom they dislike there are other men in whom especially when they are themselves in office practical adherence to the buchanan principle represents not well thought out devotion to an unwise course but simple weakness of character and desire to avoid trouble and responsibility Unfortunately, in practice, it makes little difference which class of ideas actuates the President, who by his actions sets a cramping precedent, whether he is high-minded and wrong-headed or merely infirm of purpose, whether he means well feebly or is bound by a mischievous misconception of the powers and duties of the national government and of the President. The effect of his actions is the same. The President's duty is to act so that he himself and his subordinates shall be able to do efficient work for the people, and this efficient work he and they cannot do if is permitted to undertake the task of making up his mind for him as to how he shall perform what is clearly his sole duty one of the ways in which by independent action of the executive we were able to accomplish an immense amount of work for the public was through volunteer unpaid commissions appointed by the president it was possible to get the work done by these volunteer commissions only because of the enthusiasm for the public service which starting in the higher offices at washington made itself felt throughout the government departments as i have said i never knew harder and more disinterested work done by any people than was done by the men and women of all ranks in the government service the contrast was really extraordinary between their live interest in their work and the traditional clerical apathy which has so often been the distinguishing note of governmental work in washington most of the public service performed by these volunteer commissions carried on without a cent of pay to the men themselves and wholly without cost to the government was done by men the great majority of whom were already in the government service and already charged with responsibilities amounting each to a full man's job the first of these commissions was the commission on the organization of government scientific work whose chairman was charles d walcott appointed march thirteenth nineteen o three its duty was to report directly to the president upon the organization present condition and needs of the executive government work wholly or partially scientific in character and upon the steps which should be taken if any to prevent the duplication of such work to coordinate its various branches to increase its efficiency and economy and to promote its usefulness to the nation at large this commission spent four months in an examination which covered the work of about thirty of the larger scientific and executive bureaus of the government and prepared a report which furnished the basis for numerous improvements in the government service Another commission, appointed June second nineteen 1905, was that on Department Methods, Charles H. Keep, Chairman, whose task was to find out what changes are needed to place the conduct of the executive business of the government in all its branches on the most economical and effective basis in the light of the best modern business practice. The letter appointing this commission laid down nine principles of effective governmental work, the most striking of which was, the existence of any method, standard, custom, or practice is no reason for its continuance when a better is offered. This commission, commission composed like that just described of men already charged with important work performed its functions wholly without cost to the government it was assisted by a body of about 70 experts in the government departments chosen for their special qualifications to carry forward a study of the best methods in business and organized into assistant committees under the leadership of overton w price secretary of the commission These assistant committees, all of whose members were still carrying on their regular work, made their reports during the last half of 1906. The committee informed itself fully regarding the business methods of practically every individual branch of the business of the government, and effected a marked improvement in general efficiency throughout the service. The conduct of the routine business of the government had never been thoroughly overhauled before, and this examination of it resulted in the promulgation of a set of working principles for the transaction of public business which are as sound today as they were when the committee its work the somewhat elaborate and costly investigations of government business methods since made have served merely to confirm the findings of the committee on departmental methods which were achieved without costing the government a dollar the actual savings in the conduct of the business of the government through the better methods thus introduced amounted yearly to many hundreds of thousands of dollars but a far more important gain was due to the remarkable success of the Commission in establishing a new point of view in public servants toward their work the need for improvement in the governmental methods of transacting business may be illustrated by an actual case an officer in charge of an indian agency made a requisition in the autumn for a stove costing seven dollars certifying at the same time that it was needed to keep the infirmary warm during the winter because the old stove was worn out thereupon the customary papers went through the customary routine without unusual delay at any point the transaction moved like a glacier with dignity to its appointed end and the stove reached the infirmary in good order in time for the indian agent to acknowledge its arrival in these words the stove is here so is spring the civil service commission under men like john McIlney and garfield rendered service without which the government could have been conducted with neither efficiency nor honesty the politicians were not the only persons at fault almost as much improper pressure for appointments is due to mere misplaced sympathy and to the spiritless inefficiency which seeks a government office as a haven for the incompetent an amusing feature of office seeking is that each man desiring an office is apt to look down on all others with the same object as forming an objectionable class with which he has nothing in common at the time of the eruption of Mount Pele, when among others the American consul was killed, a man who had long been seeking an appointment promptly applied for the vacancy. He was a good man of persistent nature, who felt I had been somewhat blind to his merits. The morning after the catastrophe, he wrote, saying that as the Council was dead, he would like his place, and that I could surely give it to him, because even the office-seekers could not have yet applied for it the method of public service involved in the appointment and the work of the two commissions just described was applied also in the establishment of four other commissions each of which performed its task without salary or expense for its members and wholly without cost to the government the other four commissions were commission on public lands commission on inland waterways commission on country life and commission on national conservation All of these commissions were suggested to me by Gifford Pinchot, who served upon them all. The work of the last four will be touched upon in connection with the chapter on conservation. These commissions, by their reports and findings, directly interfered with many placeholders who were doing inefficient work, and their reports and the action taken thereon by the administration strengthened the hands of those administrative officers who in the various departments, and especially in the Secret Service, were proceeding against land thieves and other corrupt wrongdoers. Moreover, the mere fact that they did efficient work for the public along lines new to veteran and cynical politicians of the old type created vehement hostility to them. Senators like Mr. Hale and congressmen like Mr. Tawney were especially bitter against these commissions, and towards the end of my term they were followed by the majority of their fellows in both houses, who had gradually been sundered from me by the open or covert hostility of the financial or Wall Street leaders, and of the newspaper editors and politicians who did their bidding in the interest of privilege these senators and congressmen asserted that they had a right to forbid the president profiting by the unpaid advice of disinterested experts of course i declined to admit the existence of any such right and continued the commissions my successor acknowledged the right upheld the view of the politicians in question and abandoned the commissions to the lasting detriment of the people as a whole one thing is worth pointing out during the seven and a half years of my administration we greatly and usefully extended the sphere of governmental action and yet we reduced the burden of the taxpayers, for we reduced the interest-bearing debt by more than ninety million dollars. To achieve a market increase in efficiency and at the same time an increase in economy is not an easy feat, but we performed it. End of Chapter Ten, Part Two. Recording by Amanda Hindman, Glen, Mississippi.